Good morning. If you will turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. I've entitled this portion of uh, Revelation, A Precious Wall. It almost sounds like an oxymoron, right? We don't think of walls as, we think of walls as just the opposite sometimes. Also, I'm, uh, you know, I'm really seriously thinking about what we're going to do next. There, are, there have been people who've come up to me and said, so when you're done with Revelation, you're retiring, right? That's, I've heard that, and I'm like, I don't know where that came from. Not unless I get raptured. At the very... And I'll tell you where I'm leaning, and I, I'm, you know, you could talk to the elders. I'm, you know, obviously, uh, they have kind of the... the heaviest weight in terms of what the next topic is going to be. Um, I'm thinking about, I've kind of I've thrown a lot of things around. I'm just throwing this out for you to, to if you want to weigh in, um, to do a short topical series on the Ten Commandments, which I like to do every few years. I think the Ten Commandments is a really valuable portion of Scripture that we need to be reminded of. And, but, of course, that would be topical. It really wouldn't be topical because it would be, you know, from, from uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, and so it's, it's exegetical. Um, but then I'm thinking about doing what I'm calling First and Second Luke. You know, you know what that would be? Yeah, it would be Luke and Acts. And uh, I, I like the idea of getting into a gospel and just kind of going through the life of Christ not that that wouldn't be controversial, but it wouldn't be as controversial as when we get into Acts. And that, there's a lot in Acts that, I know you, were, you had mentioned Acts, that might be a good book for us to go through. A lot of misunderstandings in terms of how what's going on in the book of Acts applies to today's church. So anyway, that's kind of wafting around, so you know, think about that and feel free to weigh in either with me or the elders and that'll be a discussion we have. All right, as for now, we're in Revelation 21, verses 15 through 21. Hear now the word of God. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, And height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx the sixth sardius, the seven chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we look at a passage like this, and uh, it's so uh, poetically explosive, and uh, we do pray that 
by your spirit, you would help us to make sense of it and what type of impact you would have it have upon us in terms of the beauty of it and the majesty of it and what it tells us of who you are and, and what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do, what that means to us today, how it glorifies your name, how it strengthens and secures your people. So help us, Father, to understand this passage of Scripture that we might be edified in a greater understanding of the God who has saved our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was watching a pretty horrible movie not too long ago, and um, it was a space kind of movie. I like space movies. And, uh, you know, it's all about space and time and wormholes and things like that. When the star of the movie arrived at this intended destination, so she finally gets where she needs to go in this movie, she's like awestruck by the beauty of what she's seeing. She was, a, she was an astronaut. She was a scientist. They sent her because they wanted to get a kind of a, a scientific understanding of whatever the thing was that she had discovered. So she's trying to describe it. And as she's trying to describe it, I thought this was one of the better lines in the movie, after she kept failing miserably to describe the beauty She handled that dilemma by announcing that instead of sending her on the mission, they really should have sent a poet. And I kind of like that. And I, I like that because that's the way I feel when I read a passage like this. When I look at a passage with gold and pearls and precious gems, I kind of feel like God is trying to convey something here. He's using the most beautiful things available to the human mind. And he wants us to grasp that. And and I, I, I wish I had the skill to get up here and convey to you in very poetic ways what this is seeking to convey. But there are more than beautiful images. It's not just that it's the beauty of these stones. Like so much of Revelation, they beckon us back to the Old Testament. The stones in the Bible, precious gems in the Bible, don't begin in Revelation. They're all through the text. Speaking to an old covenant church, Israel, which had lost, it's one of the eras where it had lost its beauty. Israel had lost its its vitality. God makes an astonishing promise to them regarding their resurgence. They are down low. They have behaved poorly. And they are suffering the consequences. And God makes a wonderful promise to them. But this resurgence, this glorious thing that God was going to do, really had to do with what he was going to do, not in the old covenant church, but in the new covenant church. It's what he was going to do with the great commission. What God would do with the advancement of Christ and the gospel. Truly the full consummation, and I've tried to labor this, the full consummation is at the end of history. 
but it's also working its way through history as well. In Isaiah 54, 1 through 3, we begin to see this promise unfold. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. You see what's going there, right? You're like, you're in a bad condition, I want you to sing. Have you ever not been in the mood to sing? Well, it's a good thing to overcome that. Matter of fact, I, I might argue that on those days when you're not in the mood to sing, you should sing all the more. That, that, don't give in to your flesh. They don't want to sing. But God's going, sing. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the death, desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. And then he kind of starts saying, look at, make plans for success, right? Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Well, if you're not post-millennial yet, after reading that, you should be. It's going to grow. Plan on it. But it's not merely that the church would be geographically massive, you know, taking over all the nations. It includes a very precious and preserving beauty. A little bit later in that same passage, we see the reference to the beauty. Oh, you afflicted ones, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever, how's this for a great promise to the church? Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. That's that very promise we see in Genesis 12, right? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. It's God's, it's God's promise going, look, I'm doing something good in history, and I'm bringing you in to be part of it. And even though from time to time it looks like you're going to fail, you're not going to fail. Because the kingdoms that rise up against you, they will fail. I will watch over you. You're my bride. I will watch over you. You are my kingdom. I am your king. Precious stones are expressing God-given beauty, purity, strength, and sturdiness. That's what these stones are. They're not just, they're beautiful to be sure, but they're sturdy as well. They're precious as well. The various stones, and I, I, I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll take a little time and look at each stone and see what it represents. And I 
kind of went down that road a little bit. And some people think that each stone might have a specific moral or spiritual message attached to it. But I have to say, and maybe it does, and maybe I just didn't go far enough, but I found that very difficult to be certain or to ascertain that that stone means this or this stone means that. I think it's this general array of beauty that God is seeking to express. But the redemptive nature of these stones can also be represented to us because we see these similar stones on the breastplate of the high priest. So we see that it's not just beauty and it's not just, you know, preservation. It's, it's holiness. God is doing something holy. I think it's also worth noting that the very first stone, Jasper, is used when John is first caught up into heaven's open door, all the way back in chapter 4. Remember, it's this idea of come up here and I will show you these things. And that Jasper is used to describe the one who sat upon the throne. We see it in chapter 4, verse 3, and he who sat there. So you've got this one upon the throne, right, who is God. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around him in appearance like an emerald. This should be yet another portion of the revelation that wars against us taking things too literally. Right? I mean, you've got God on a throne, but it's a jasper. Is it God or is it a jasper? I think H.B. Sweet said it pretty well when he argued that in terms of this passage, chapter 4, verse 3, it rigorously shuns anthropomorphic details. In other words, he's going out of his way to go, look, I'm not drawing a picture of God. This is is not an image. It's a message. And I think even when we see references to Christ, we see the phrase, one like the Son of Man, almost in order to give a little distance between what he's describing and the true deity of of Christ. All this to say that John is shown what amounts to be an otherworldly beauty, strength, holiness, and power. This is the destiny of those who belong to Christ. This is yours. This is not something that is just out there, and we'll get to this in a second. It is something for you to meditate upon and to know in terms of who you are. All of this belongs to those who believe in the one who took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on that throne and redeemed us to God by his blood. Perhaps, just perhaps, as we look at this and we're seeing these very heavenly, beautiful pictures, this was a taste of what Paul saw when he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, right? In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks almost like in the third person about himself. I know a person. 
and he was caught up into this third heaven, and he saw this paradise and words that I can't even say. You wonder how that would affect you. I mean, there's one danger in all of this. And there was a danger for Paul. And, and, and we, but, of course, God brought him there, right, to see this. And, he, and, it's, and in a way, through Scripture, he's doing that for us, right? God's going, I want you to see that which is virtually inexpressible. I'm going to express it to you in the most magnificent ways possible. But it clearly goes beyond what I'm saying. It goes beyond the precious gems and stones and walls and what have you. What happened to Paul when that happened to him? There was this danger that he began to think more highly of himself than he should. Right? That, uh, that having experienced such a wonderful understanding of the glory of God, he began to maybe think a little bit more in terms of the august nature of his own self. And how did God deal with that? With Paul. Right? I mean, it was... You talk about a tough mess, a lesson, right? A messenger of Satan. I've always found that to be a very interesting passage, right? If I were to say, you know, who... Who did that to Paul? Whatever that, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh for sure was. Some people think it was a physical condition. I heard a pastor give a pretty strong argument one time that it was probably a person in the congregation. (laughs) We don't know for sure, right? But it was a messenger of Satan, and yet it was really God. Right? I mean, because it was designed to humble Paul. Let me tell you something that I'm pretty confident about Satan, and that is he doesn't want you humble. He wants you proud. And, but what he meant for Paul's destruction, God meant for Paul's good. Well, I, think there's a big, I think there's a big lesson there in terms of all the battles we find ourselves going through and who's really in charge. I think one of the most dangerous stops in our spiritual journey is that discovery of the wonders of the glory of God. It's a dangerous thing because we are tempted to become proud and impatient that others have not yet figured it out. I mean, we forget our past. You know, we, for, we forget what it was like when, you know, we were young and foolish. But if we could back way up, I got news for you. We're all still young and foolish. You you know, we haven't arrived. Paul says, not that I've arrived, right? But I press on. But if he hadn't arrived, I'm pretty sure I haven't arrived, and you haven't arrived. And there needs to be this sense where God has a timing with the lives of of people. It is funny how, as I was writing this, and I, you know, I very much include myself in this, 
It is funny how we make an effort at being humble. <laughs> when we really should realize that humility is our only reasonable option. It's like making an effort at letting gravity... I'm going to really try to let gravity have its way with me today. Good job. Verse 15, and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. So this idea of measuring, you know, we're going to read, we'll see that in a second uh, in another passage, is generally acquainted with the idea of knowing something well and protecting it. Like you, you, you're like, you take the measuring tape and you're like going, this is what I got to take care of. These are the things that are under my you know, purview. God would have Jerusalem measured in his promise to protect and bring his glory into her midst. And we're going to read that in just a second. But he's like, I'm going to measure you because I intend to protect you and I intend to be with you. Verse 16, the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Now, again, you know, I mean, uh, I went online because I knew somebody would be drawing pictures of this. I'm like, I wonder what this looks like. And if... I have to say, if we are, and don't get me wrong, I think a lot of the Bible we need to take literally. Right? I think Jesus was born a, a virgin. He was sinless. He, 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 he died in real, literally died, literally rose again, and what have you. But sometimes when you take, if you take the Bible literally, it, it almost becomes nonsense, right? In Psalm 91, it talks about God's wings. You know, I don't think God has wings, right? God's not some big fowl, right? Feathers. So we got to be careful and we got to kind of decide, you know, with honest Bible study, what's to be understood literally and what's to be understood figuratively. This looks to be a big, gigantic cube flying through space. That's what this looks like. Its measurements. If in, you know, because those of you who don't know what furlongs are, I know what a furlong is because when I was a kid, my dad took me to the track. I mean, that was a unit of measurement I was quite familiar with. I was talking to Mick Herzl one time. We were on a, when we were youth pastors, and there was a guy in front of us who was driving a bunch of the kids. And he had been to Yellowstone and Bryce, and he had all these stickers, you know. And we're like, Gosh, Scott's probably been to every park in America. I go, yeah, when I was a kid, by the time I was 15, the only park I'd ever been to was Hollywood Park. (laughs) But in modern measurement, this would be 1,500 miles high, wide, and, and deep. So that's what you've got described here, a big, giant cube 1,500 miles high, wide, and deep. And I don't know about you, I just don't find the idea of spending eternity in a big box all that appealing. I mean, I've heard people try to describe, oh, it's going to be this great, beautiful, big, giant cube, and we're going to get in there, and I'm like, 
It's just, that's just not working for me. Now, the fact that it doesn't work for me, by the way, doesn't mean it's not true. Maybe we will spend eternity in a big, gigantic cube, like the Borg. Yeah. <laughs> I told you I like those kinds of shows. But I don't think that's what is going on here at all. We've spoken in the past about the significance of the number 12 and the significance of the number 1,000, right? So you got 12,000 furlongs. But I think we all should recognize also the significance of a cube in the Bible. Because the holy of holies was a cube. This is the shape of the holy of holies. You guys know, know the holy of holies, right? The most sacred place in the tabernacle, the most sacred place in the temple. It was the presence of God. It was where the, the high priest could only go in once a year, and it taught us of Jesus, the anchor of our soul, who would go before the presence of God, not in a man-made holy of holies, but in the true holy of holies. But this is the way the Bible expresses what it means to be in the presence of God. Let us also bear in mind that the majority of this text that I read this morning is not really speaking of the city. I don't know if you noticed that. I mean, it's not speaking of the big giant cube as much as it's speaking about the wall that is surrounding the cube. All the gems of which we read are not speaking of the city, but of the construction of its wall. And the wall, just if we're going to, again, look at the image of it, the picture of it, seems oddly small for the city. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. So we have a wall that's maybe just over 200 feet high, surrounding a city that's 1,500 miles high. You can't, it's almost like you can't even really draw a picture because it's so small in comparison like a, the people who try to draw a picture, it's almost like a little, little piece of string around the big cube. But I think we have to recognize all of these th images are designed to convey a message. And the message revolves around, as I've said, something beautiful, powerful, pure, strong, and sturdy designed to protect the wall. It's a wall. Well, I was tempted to go into a big, long kind of monologue on walls. A lot of fuss these days about walls, right? Walls can be viewed as horribly confining, right? Walls can be an image of being kept in, right? Certain, there are certain countries are like, you can't leave. You can't get out. People want out. You can't leave. Bring that wall down. They can also be kind of emblematic of, of uh, the rejection of those seeking asylum, people who want in. You're like, oh, no, I got a wall up here. You're not, you can't come in. I mean, so there's all sorts of weird, odd, true and false notions of what a wall is. But historically and in the Bible, walls generally marked out the boundaries of a city 
and they were a source of protection. That's what it was. And, and, and the gates, you know, of that wall is usually where people hung out and talked. It's like the mall, right? It's, it's at the city gates. So you've got, you've got, but you've got a wall, and a wall is designed to mark out the city and to protect. It's designed to protect. In anticipation of the light of Christ, Isaiah records this in Isaiah 60, 18. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation. And your gates, praise. I mean, we see it right there, right? I mean, in terms of just what this is designed to convey to us. Our salvation, our very salvation is expressed by way of a glorious and magnificent wall, your salvation. Isaiah also expresses the growing nature of God's city. Again, in Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, so you've got this, you've got this city and it's got a wall, but the weird thing about a wall, if you have a wall around the city, the city remains the same size, right? Because that's the wall. And, you know, it'd be a very difficult thing to tear the wall down and make it bigger. You think of the wall of China, right? How hard would it be? To, well, we're going to expand the borders of China, so let's tear the wall down and rebuild it. That's not going to happen. But we see the fact that the Bible talks about the growth of that city. Again, enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people, and, uh, and will people the desolate cities. So we see this growth, we see the expansion, if you will, of the walls, but I think perhaps one of the most appropriate passages in the Old Testament which speaks to these walls is found in the second chapter of Zechariah. It's a passage, and, I, and I'm going to quote Calvin here because there are, you know, there's debate as to whether or not this is a promise to you know, ethnic Israel in the future. I don't think that's right. I think it is a promise to the church. Calvin says this passage in Zechariah, which is in the Old Testament, expresses that, there, that God intended here, this passage I'm about to read, to bear witness respecting the propagation of his church after the coming of Christ. And I think he's right. I think that's what's happening here. And it's from uh, Zechariah 2, and I'm just going to read five verses here. And we'll see the similarity here in terms of the measuring, in terms of the wall. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him who said to him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem. I, 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 you know, I, I'm stopping here because 
as I was studying this, um, such wonderful commentators say so much about what I'm just kind of glossing over rapidly. This, the idea that, that these angels are talking and there's this haste, right? I'm doing something. I'm protecting my people. I'm advancing my people. Hurry up. I mean, there's a, there's a beauty to the intensity at which God is expressing what's going on here. I'm measuring the city. There are men involved. There are angels involved. Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls. See, now you don't have the problem tearing the wall down, right? Because of the multitude of men and livestock in it, for I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. You see, if you read Revelation in light of the Old Testament, you begin to see the picture, right? The wall. What is God saying? Who's the wall? I'm the wall. What we have to recognize, and I do hope that we all at some level take this to heart. And I have to say, if, you know, I want to vent here, but I feel like one of the downsides in the current Reformed community is that it's kind of a we for no more shut the door mentality. Like We're not hungry to advance the kingdom of God. We're kind of satisfied just kind of going, hey, we got our group, I like, it. I like us. Every one of us should be praying about who we might invite to church or invite to your home or, you know, speak the gospel to. I mean, if you're not doing that, look, I'm not, I don't mean to turn this into something that's good for you. I mean, I like things that are good for you. But it is good for you to be actively advancing the kingdom of God. It's good for them and it's good for you. And if you're not doing it, there's a... There's a, a, you've got a stagnant heart. I'll, I will promise you this. And I realize, I realize our church is heavy and weighty and theological and all that stuff, you know. And I realize, you know, it's easier to invite people to a church where it's kind of a concert. You know, it's just, that's just more comfortable. I'm going to make this promise that if I look out and I see a whole bunch of strangers... I'll try to make things easier to understand. But if I don't, plan on the advanced degree version of the sermon. And I have to say, I, I, I know it excites my heart when I see new people. Part of it is because, as I mean, I'm, I've always been very evangelistic. I invite people to church every single, I have every single, before I was a pastor. Part of it is because I can tell old stories over again and it's got a, I've got a new audience. <laughs> Just kidding. But we are all called to advance a kingdom. And this kingdom we're advancing has no literal wall. And we meet in a building, right? There's walls here, but you, we all know that the church is not the building. Right? 
And it's a kingdom which is called to break down the gates of darkness, not literal gates, but a metaphor for that which is dark, that which is subduing the hearts of our neighbors. Do you care? I hope you care. I hope you care. I don't want to be overly dramatic. That I hope you care that your neighbor may spend eternity in hell. We get uncomfortable with the idea of condemnation. Well, the Bible talks about it. I haven't done the math myself, but my understanding is Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. And it wasn't because he was trying to be mean-spirited any more than the doctor who says you have cancer is trying to be mean-spirited. You're getting the diagnosis because the doctor with his next breath says, but there's something we can do about it. And that is, you can have life. This kingdom advances through history, literally, and into eternity, literally. But it does have a wall. Interesting that passage, right? Jerusalem is there, hey, there's not going to be any wall, but it does have a wall. The Lord is the wall. And a real different kind of wall, I had a hard time finding this type of wall. It was a wall it's a wall of fire. It's this idea that, you know, you see movies where people are going to try to knock down the wall, right? And maybe they'll get in and get in, but no, this wall has an offensive nature to it. You get near that wall and you get incinerated, right? Our God is a consuming fire. He will will suffer evil for only so long. He will suffer attacks upon his church, his people, for only so long before he says, I'm stepping in and you're done. For those who trust in Christ, God himself is, in fact, your wall. Matthew Henry put it this way. He says things, you know, so beautifully. He will make, or he will be a wall of fire round them, which cannot be broken through, nor scaled, nor undermined, nor the foundations of it sapped, nor can it be attempted or approached without danger to the assailants. God will not only make a wall of fire about her, but he himself will be such a wall. I don't know, you ever feel vulnerable? You ever feel like uh, exposed, weak, susceptible? Because if it's a promise to the church, it's a promise to the people in the church. It's a promise to you who are in Christ. God God is all about not just saving you, but he's about preserving you and protecting you and finishing in you what he started. Even when we don't feel that way, even when we feel the way a lot of Psalms feel in the very beginning, where are you, Lord? And then you keep reading, and then the answer is generally given. I'm pretty much right here. The fact that you don't know I'm here doesn't mean I'm not here. The fact that you can't feel me here doesn't mean I'm not here. My power as your God is not limited by your ability to figure it out. We can't can't get 
God to be any more loving of us than He is, any more protective of us than He is. We, we can't conjure it up. He, he's committed. I love my favorite psalm historically has been Psalm 139. And there's a, the whole thing is beautiful, but He, he scrutinizes my path. It made me think of when my kids were little and we'd go for a walk, take them around the block or something. And, I, and as the dad, I'm looking, right? I'm scrutinizing the path. Are they going to trip? Is there a dog? Is there a car? Is there any... I mean, I remember when my... Uh, for those of you who have little ones, <laughs> I remember when... Uh, my children became ambulatory, right? I mean, because when they're first born, they just lay there. And you put them in a little burrito wrap, stick them there, and they don't move. And then all of a sudden, they start moving, right? They start crawling, and wherever you go, you got to do a quick assessment of the room. Right? Are there outlets? Are there sharp corners? They don't even know, these kids, these little nine months crawling. They're like, hey, I'm crawling now. I'm like, yeah, you're crawling right for an outlet. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't like, well, if you get wise enough to figure out how to ask me to rescue you from the outlet, I will. It always, I always feel like when people get tricky with prayer, when they're like, oh, I figured out this new way to prayer, to pray, where God will really do what I'm asking Him to do. Have you ever t- heard people like this? Oh, I've learned, inter- there's this new intercessory prayer, and when I do it that way, boy, God really... And I'm not saying there aren't better ways to pray. There probably are better ways to pray, but at the same time, none of us knows how to pray. But I do know this, that if one of my kids falls in the pool, and they start yelling for help, I'm not going to say, well, you're really not saying those words with the proper syntax. <laughs> what you mean is, help me, Dad. All right, you know, no, what do you do, right? You just reach in, you pull them out, and you learn them how to teach, you learn them how to talk later. It was, a, it was a battle for me with this idea of a wall because when you get right down to it, it's kind of counterintuitive and against our nature to want to be walled in, right? I mean, this idea that, hey, everybody, we're going to be in heaven and there's a big wall doesn't sound right. There's a feeling of constraint of being limited, of being closed in, right? You, this idea, but it, is, but, but it is the wall of God's salvation. And let me just say, we got to be careful not to get again too literal because it's, this wall is what creates our true freedom. And I remember years ago when I was in college, I, was take, I took this class, this psychology class where they had all these studies, you know, they'd study like, you know, the Milgram study. I remember the Milgram study where you're shocking a guy to see if he'll, seeing if the guy's shocking, the guy answering the questions, if he'll keep shocking him. 
I mean, some of the studies were really mean studies. It's like, we're going to figure out just how awful you can be. And they had all these studies, but one of the studies they did, and it was more of an observation than a study. It had to do with children on a playground. And they observed children on a playground that had no fence, no wall. And those children tended to stay in the middle of the yard. They didn't explore. It's almost as if they, they had this kind of innate knowledge that you get too far to the edges here and it's kind of scary. So they all hung out in the middle. And then they put a fence up. And then they explored everywhere. Now they felt the freedom. And I think that's what God's wall is like. God's wall is kind of going, look at Outside of this wall is death and darkness. In reality, what's in this wall is the beauty of all of creation that I have brought and life itself. In this wall is life. And that life, that wall, that city that beauty, that protection, that sustenance belongs to all who call upon the name of Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we could appreciate the beauty of your kingdom. We do pray, Father, that because it is so beautiful, we would seek to advance it. That that's that salvation is found in no other name. And we do pray that, that we would live in a world as we send that message out that would recognize that what appears to be freedom is actually slavery. A slave to sin is not free at all. But a one who is a slave to righteousness is truly free. And we do pray, Father, that the, the clarity of that message would ever live in our hearts, minds, and lips. In Jesus' name, amen.